Our scripture for today is going to be from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. No, 24. I can read. Everything's okay. I went to public school, and this is what you get. So, no offense to the teachers. Good. 
Well, in the Mask of the Red Death, there are rooms, seven of them. They start at the east with a light blue room, and then they go to all these different colors, and they end in the west in a black room with red windows. We were talking about symbolism in my class, so what do you think that might represent? Sun rising, sun setting, birth, death, the stages of life. And then I thought, well, how can I bring that and show you? So I have my little friend Catherine here, Catherine Caterpillar. Caterpillars, don't stay caterpillars, do they? No. They go through a series of changes, and you probably can't see this from where you are, but here's Catherine over here, and then Catherine makes a, a chrysalis, and while in that chrysalis, things happen, and things happen, and eventually she breaks out, and she becomes something new. She grows up, and she becomes, it's hard work in that chrysalis. <laughs> She becomes a butterfly. And that happens to us, too. We don't stay the way we're born. None of us stays an infant, do we? We grow up. Things happen. Our bodies change. The things we do change. And we become a new person. We become something else. Now, I brought a few pictures that I've shown to my kids at school. They thought it was pretty weird. But this is a, the lifespan or the life uh, stages of a woman in old tiny things. But you have the baby over here and the old woman over here and the different ages. And I have the same one for a man. That's a little harder to see because they all kind of look sort of similar. So I brought this one. This is a little more modern. Also probably very difficult to see. And then I found one that I thought was kind of a little bit funny. Our transportation over the years. Okay, first we're wheeled into the maternity ward. We're in a baby carriage, a stroller. Then we're driving our trikes, our bikes, our skateboards, our motorcycles. They're not here today. Uh, then we have the family van. Then our midlife crisis car. And then our wheeled walkers our racing wheelchairs, and then the hearse that takes us out at the end. So our, our modes of transportation change as well. And different things are expected of us at different ages. When we're an infant, are we expected to cook dinner? No. When we're in our middle years, we're expected to cook dinner maybe, right? When we're in our middle years, are we expected to wear Diapers and drink from a bottle with a nipple on it? No, because we've grown up. We've grown past that stage into a new stage. And I think that's what our scripture's talking about. We're born as infants, but we don't stay infants. And we don't stay infants in our faith either. Our faith needs to grow. It needs to grow with us. So we're not always going to be brand new, uh, bright-eyed, awestruck Christians when that first happens to us, sometimes that's such a wonderful, wow, feeling. And then as we progress through our faith journey, sometimes things happen. And we have to go through that chrysalis time 
where it's a little trickier, and we have to work hard, and we have to wrestle with our faith. And I wish I could remember more of what we talked about in the class that I took with Pastor Jen about that whole thing, but as I said, my brain's a little scattered today. But um, <laughs> You're doing pretty well. Okay, good. <laughs> um, we wrestle, and we, God works with us. He shapes us, and he takes us from the caterpillar to the butterfly. And the butterfly has a different job than a caterpillar does, doesn't it? And we have different jobs at different stages in our lives. So, be aware, because God's not done with us yet. And he's going to keep changing us and making us into what he needs us to be until we end up there. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you aren't finished with us yet. Sometimes we feel lost and afraid and broken and confused. But we know that whatever is going on, you're in there, fixing it, making it the way you need it to be. We thank you that we don't stay infants, but that we can grow. We can grow muscles and bones. We can grow in our faith, and we can grow in our understanding of things. And we can then turn around and help those that are growing. So strengthen our faith, strengthen our bodies, so that we can be good servants for you. In Jesus' name. Lord God, thank you for this chance to look at your word together as your children. Uh, we pray that you will help us to understand what you want us to. We pray that you will help you to speak clearly. Please open our minds, our hearts, and our lives to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you, when you were little kids, wanted to grow up? That, well, why, why did you want to grow up? So I could eat whatever I want and go to bed when I want. Eat whatever you want, go to bed whenever you want. Yeah, that's probably the only thing. A new freedom. A new freedom? I could drive. You drive? <laughs> I could be the boss of me. No one's going to be the boss of you? No, I oh, could you be, can the be the boss of you. Okay, right. So, I was that weird kid who did not want to grow up. Did not. At all. There is a poem by A.A. Milne who wrote the, Christopher, uh, the Winnie the Pooh stories, and he wrote a series of poems, some of which also surrounded Christopher Robin, because his son was actually Christopher Robin. And there's one poem called Now We Are Six, and it goes something like, When I was one, I had just begun. When I was two, I was nearly new. When I was three, I was not quite me, or almost me, or something. When I was four, wow, I should have written this down. I thought I could do it from memory. Apparently not. Anyway, when I was five, I was just alive, but now I am six, and I'm clever as a clever, so I think I'll be six now, forever and ever. <laughs> <laughs> and when I heard that poem at age five, I thought, ooh, can you really do that? Can I stay six forever? Because sign me up. I just want to be six forever. I had a really great teacher when I was six. My kindergarten teacher was actually horrible, but my first grade teacher was awesome. Yeah, that's a whole story. Um, 
which I will not tell you right now. But I also, I liked being a kid because I loved my parents. They took really good care of me. I could see that they had a lot of responsibility. I personally did not want to learn how to drive. Did not. Um, I didn't actually feel confident that I could learn to do what they were doing. And so I thought, how great would it be if I could just be six forever and they could keep doing the things and I didn't have to. I understood at age five what, this was the 70s by the way, what millennials coined in the last decade, adulting is hard. So I didn't want it. But that's not super normal. However, I do wonder sometimes if, when we read passages like the one today, in Ephesians 4, if we feel a similar reluctance to growing up, although maybe we feel that for different reasons. Um, I would recommend, if you can, to look up the passage pretty much every time I preach. I'm never going to remember to remind you all of that. I'm never going to remember to tell you to do this all the time. But I think it's really helpful when I'm talking. Um, I reference specific verses and you can look it up yourself and see where it is in there. If you're using a few Bible, it's on page 828. Um, so, in verse 11 of Ephesians 4, Paul says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And I think if we're a little nervous about what growing up spiritually might mean, we can say, great, Christ gave us those people. Let them be the spiritual adults. They can, they can do that stuff, and, and I don't have to worry about it, because that's their job. But then, verse 12 tells us why Christ gave us those people. To equip his people, all of them, for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So the goal for each Christian and for each church and for the church as a whole is for us to become spiritually mature. It's not going to look the same for every individual or even every church. But what maturity looks like in general, Paul actually tells us. He says, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of grace. That's what maturity looks like for a Christian. What in the world? <laughs> what does it look like for somebody to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? That's heavy, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, I mean, can you even imagine what that would look like? What do you think are some qualities of a person that is attaining that, at least? Love. Love, yeah. Hope. Patience. Patience. Righteousness. Righteousness. Acts of service. Acts of service. Humility. Humility. Yeah, all those things. And probably more. I mean, we can do wisdom. Wisdom, yeah, right. So, do you think attaining this is hard? Sometimes. If we were on our own, it would be impossible. 
Fortunately, and it is, I, I think it is hard, but fortunately, it's differently hard. We have the Holy Spirit, which the whole first part of Ephesians has been reminding us. The Holy Spirit is, like we said, we imagined this crazy sci-fi possibility of a DNA transplant. And the Holy Spirit gives us a DNA transplant. Or, we're, you know, Jesus is the one who came up with the idea of being born again, right? If you are literally born again, you could have a whole new DNA to start with. So, we, when we are cooperating with that new spiritual DNA that is in us, we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to become more and more and more like Jesus. We grow up with this new DNA. And so, yeah, we can't do everything perfectly at the beginning when we're little baby Christians, but we can grow up. Paul is going to use a couple of different analogies in this passage to describe why becoming spiritually mature is important. We know that in life, in, in a literal sense with human development, you have a healthy baby born, you expect that baby's body to grow, you expect their mind to grow, and you expect their emotions and their personality and all those things to grow. And they don't grow without some guidance, but you, would, you don't want them to stay, I mean you might want them to stay a little baby because babies are cute, but really for the well-being of that child, you don't really want them to stay a little baby. And you certainly don't want one part of them to grow and not another part. Right? If that's if that child is born healthy with all ten fingers and toes and um, doesn't have some kind of um, thing that they were born with that prevents those processes, those are the processes that you want to happen. And so Paul is kind of saying that needs to happen to spiritual babies too. We need to grow. So the first analogy he uses, there's actually two, they're like baby cartoons. Paul has a couple baby cartoons that he describes for us. The first one is, um, you know what, I think I might have that one. Oh yeah, so these baby cartoons are kind of bizarre. They're kind of funny and they're kind of horrifying. The first one is more horrifying and the second one is more bizarre. Um, and maybe we can tell that Paul probably didn't have a whole lot of time around kids from these. But he does recognize the importance of natural human development, and he does extrapolate that into spiritual human development. So here's the first baby cartoon. There's an infant all by itself in a basket or little boat tossed back and forth by the waves. That's kind of horrifying. It's also kind of true to life in Paul's time. People really used to, in the Roman Empire and among the Greeks before that, and in other cultures, I think even, um, unwanted children would be left to the elements. And this was especially true for girls and for the disabled. I think this is an interesting little side note. Because in the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. The church as a whole is symbolized as female. And so you can kind of imagine this little girl baby being 
thrown into a boat and then just thrown into the water. And, and Paul is kind of saying, this could happen to you, baby Christian, or this could happen to the church, where someone could just put it in the water and the waves are going to take it wherever. Um, I actually read a novel just a couple weeks ago, which was, it was a weird novel, I don't recommend it, but um, in it, it, take, it took place in the Middle Ages, and there was an unwanted child, and somebody said, let's put it in a boat, and if it makes it somewhere, and someone finds this baby and takes it in, well then the baby was supposed to live, and if not, well, I guess it was a cursed baby, and so we don't need it anymore. That's horrible, right? If you put a baby in a boat all by itself, it is literally going to go wherever the winds and the waves take it. All the way up until, best case, someone finds it, or, second best case, it runs aground, and just, but if no one finds it, that's still awful, or it smashes against some rocks, or the, the little thing fills up with water, and the baby drowns. Apostle Paul, why are you painting such a horrible picture? Maybe because if we remain spiritual babies and never grow up, we will be as susceptible to what Paul calls the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming as a baby itself in a boat would be to the wind and the waves. In the end, for us, being totally susceptible to the cunning and craftiness of people, the end is actually just as horrifying. We don't realize that that's horrifying for our spirits because we can't see our spirits and it just and so Paul has to paint a really horrific, drastic picture to say let me give you this little gut punch image to show you something awful happening to the most vulnerable human there is so that you fully understand how serious and terrible it is for us to never grow up and other doctrines and other theories in the world and other religions and all of them can have some truth in them and we talk about that when we talk about what we can and can't use in church or as Christians um, there are elements of truth in many, 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 many systems of thought and when we are spiritually mature we can figure out which parts are true and which parts are not and we can take what's true and we can put aside what isn't but when we're babies we can't tell the difference, and so we can be completely blown off course and into the side of a cliff. We need to do everything possible and support each other in every way possible to keep that from happening. And how do we do that? Well, there's probably a lot of ways, but the next sentence Paul says, speaking the truth in love. This is not something anybody does very well. Uh, and there are plenty of churches out there who will use this phrase and then either not speak the truth or not speak it in love. <laughs> um, it's hard to do, but we talked last week about the key being humility, gentleness, patience, love, aiming at peace. And so this is kind of, we have to keep that in the back of our minds this whole time. If you cannot speak the truth with those things, you're missing something. But if we can speak genuine truth to each other in a way that is loving to each other, humbly and gently and patiently and lovingly and peacefully, 
then it leads to growth. We are able to grow together. Here's the second baby cartoon. Bobblehead Jesus. <laughs> we know we've seen babies, right? You know, babies have heads that are disproportionately big for their bodies. And they really do have to grow into their heads. And so that's the, and people actually use that terminology. That's the uh, idea that <clears throat> Paul is getting at here. And babies can't, you know, they're still developing. Their spines aren't very strong and, and their heads kind of bobble around. So you have to be careful when you're holding a baby. You have to support the head. Anybody that has ever <clears throat> held a baby will be told that if they didn't already know. What's bizarre about this picture that Paul is painting, this little cartoon that Paul is drawing, is that as he describes it, it sounds like the head is fully mature. It's an adult head. It's Jesus' head on this tiny little baby body. It's all like floppy and stuff. <laughs> this is horrifying in a different way. It's grotesque, but it's also kind of funny. But it is also sobering and humbling. Think about it. Jesus himself is so humble that he will restrain himself to our level of maturity. So, that might be some motivation to grow up. I think this speaks to a lot of what's happening in churches around here and, and in this nation. Um, we haven't taken seriously, we've taken following rules seriously. We haven't taken seriously really maturing in every way into our head, Jesus Christ. In verses 15 and 16, Paul says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the full mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by its every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Even if the rest of the American church is not doing this, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can. This afternoon's cleanup is actually one way of doing this. We might say, you know, Bible study and praying and more Bible studies together, those are how we mature into the head, and they are, and we're going to be focusing on that more in the coming year. I'm going to be posting a weekly reading program for us, and we're going to be able to interact with those things, and we're going to dig into scripture on a new level in the coming year, but we're, there are other ways to do that, and part of how to do that is to forge our part of unity in Christ in love by doing practical things, like helping take care of the building, or helping each other when people have need. Um, some of us do that really well here, others of us that's a little harder for I'm way better at this than at that. Doesn't mean I shouldn't do that. I know what I'm good at, but I still need to be part of this family and help out with other skills and work together with you. This is how we join together and become a more cohesive family. Plus, it's actually kind of fun to do work projects together. It really is. Okay. So, what are we trying 
trying to grow up from or grow up out of. Well, actually, when, when a baby's born, we're not usually thinking in terms of like they have to grow up away from something, but Paul actually has a little bit of, of he does have a goal for us that's, that separates us from where we've come from. So in verse 17 he says, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. In this case, we already talked about the Jews and the Gentiles um, and the people in the Ephesian church are mostly Gentile background but in this case, Paul is talking, is using the term Gentile to refer to people who don't follow Jesus yet, no matter what their ethnic background is, and or religious background. They have a way of life that's different from the family of God. In verses 18 and 19, it says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That's not very politically correct, Apostle Paul. It's kind of mean. But it's also kind of accurate. Paul is talking about actually everybody before we're born again. In another passage in Romans, Paul describes these this type of Gentile, as people who have their consciences seared with a hot iron. If you burn yourself really badly, you get blisters, and then you get a scab, and then you get this scar, and that piece of skin is going to be less sensitive than the other parts of skin, ultimately. At first, it's going to be more sensitive, but then you're not going to really be able to feel anything with that part of your body very well, right? I mean, you may be able to feel like if you're poking it, but you can't sense textures as well. And this is the kind of thing that Paul's talking about in Romans, but also here. They are having lost all sensitivity. If our consciences have been seared, if we have lost all sensitivity, if our souls have been so scarred over that we're not sensitive to the Holy Spirit's work, we will overindulge in the good things that God has created. We will start to pervert them. We will start to change them. And when we do that, it actually gives those things control over us. And we'll do it, and we'll allow them to have control over us, because we are trying to feel something. We're trying to feel something good, but we're trying to feel something. And this is how addictions happen, and this is where idolatry comes from. And when this goes too far, usually violence, abuse, and disregard for human life in any form will follow. And that can, be, that can happen with abortion, but it can also happen with misogyny and racism and other kinds of prejudice. This is not part of who the people of God are supposed to be. Paul isn't really accusing the Gentiles here. Paul is kind of assuming that this is everybody's starting point. And it's okay if that's the starting point, but it is a terrible thing when this immaturity, this starting point, continues in the church. And at least I am seeing this in churches all over the place. 
where this kind of immaturity, and we know there's sexual abuse, that's people who are indulging their sensuality. There's spiritual abuse. There, that's power hungry. There's materialism. That's green. These things get into our churches, and they're not supposed to be there. That is a sign of either the Holy Spirit is not working there at all because people aren't allowing it, or there is a deep, deep immaturity that has never been grown up from. Once we have put our trust in Jesus and the Holy Spirit, who is the one who helped us put our trust in Jesus in the first place, and the Holy Spirit is living in our spirits, we need to grow up from this. This is not how the family of God works. This is not how the family we're a part of works. God is our Father. Our desires and our feelings or our possessions, those things are no longer our boss. Jesus came to give us our freedom. He doesn't want us to be enslaved to anything on earth, not even the good things, the things that were originally good, like married sexual relationships and good food and good drink and good uh, art and good um, sports and things that we enjoy, even those good things, we can interact with those things. They cannot be our masters when we are in the family of God because we are free people. Maturity means that we can engage, we can use, we can be a part of the good things that God created to be enjoyed, as God created them to be enjoyed, without them controlling us. And we're able to do that because we are sensitive to the Spirit, and we let the Spirit influence how we live, instead of our feelings, or our intellects, or the other things that have previously been the boss and running the show. So the last image that Paul gives us in this passage is about clothing. God's family dresses different. That is sometimes true, literally. There are people in some churches that have very strict dress codes, and that is not what we're talking about here. But it is an analogy that Paul uses. In verses 20 and 21, he says, That, however, the, the Gentile way, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. God's new united people, united in Jesus by the grace of the Holy Spirit, have a new way, a new way to live, a new way to look. In verses 22 and 24, it says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. We might think that clothing is a surface-level analogy. I mean, yes, it does say take off your old self, put on your new self, but it's still a clothing analogy, and we're, you know, clothing is just clothes, right? You put it on your body, and different people have different styles, but it seems like a surface-level thing, more or less. Here's something that I've been learning about recently that is, I think, really important because the New Testament letter writers, the writers of the epistles, use clothing in their writings a lot. And I didn't really understand why or how that was significant until a couple, maybe a month or so ago. Um, and I'm starting to look into it a little bit more now. 
in the Roman Empire, in that society, what you wore was a description of your status. So here, you can tell if people are rich or poor based on their clothes, kind of, but there's not really a thing that says, rich people have to wear this, and poor people have to wear this. And um, in the Roman Empire, togas were actually not that common, but only those super rich, powerful people would ever wear them, and you could tell what their status was in their upper echelons sphere because of, like, if they had a stripe on their toga and that they were equestrians or something. I don't know. Um, what's that? Purple. Purple was a big color. Yeah, colors was a big difference. Um, so, social classes in the Roman Empire were actually strictly defined. There wasn't merging. They didn't have magazines where they would show something the Hollywood Star wore and then you can say, here's how you make a knockoff version of this by go to Target and get this thing and go to Old Navy and get this other thing. They didn't have that. That wasn't really allowed. You had very strict social classes and your clothes reflected it. And you weren't supposed to cross it to, like, if a slave decided to wear her master's or mistress's dress, that would be not only would that be inappropriate in that setting anyway, but like that would just be crazy, awful, terrible sin. So, in the epistles, especially Paul uses clothing, talks about clothing, to remind God's people that we are not slaves and we are not masters. Human beings are equal in God's sight. We are all children of God in Christ. So, there's examples of this in James. James says, writes about, don't give preference to people who dress up all fancy and stuff. The reason why is because there aren't supposed to be social classes in the church. Don't treat the rich people special. They're, if they're really Christians, they're like you. And if they're not really Christians yet, well, they're, if they become Christians, they're going to be like you. So they don't get any special treatment. Slaves, you can wear what free people wear. Because this is, we're, we're free people. We are all free people of Christ. I just learned that the head coverings passage in, I forget which epistle, the head covering was something that free women would wear. And so in this, in Paul's context, to tell women to wear a head covering in church was actually an honor. You're not a slave to Christ. You can wear a head covering. That's a game changer. Anyway, we're not trying to look like aristocracy because that would imply that we're servants of the emperor, not the king. We also don't need to dress like slaves because even if our social status in the world is very low, that is no longer who we are. We are not slaves to our desires. We are not slaves to our things. We are not even slaves to other people, really. Take off the slave clothes, is what Paul is saying here, spiritually. Take off those slave clothes, the darkened understanding, the insensitive spirits, 
the enslavement to sensuality and purity and greed, take those off and put on the clothes of a free person, a child of God who is growing up. Growing up takes guidance and it takes discipline and it takes self-discipline. But here's the thing. This is the good news. God, our Father, loves us. Whatever our earthly fathers are like, I know there are some good fathers in here. And so that means that the possibility of a good father exists. There are good fathers. And God is a good father even better than the best earthly fathers. And he loves us. And the Holy Spirit, when we trust in Jesus, lives in us and wants us to be free and wants to help us be free. And the end result is that we get to look like Jesus. And it might sound intimidating and it might sound hard, but actually, if you think about Jesus himself, he's wonderful. He's free. He doesn't have a hard time making decisions because his will is united with the Father's and he knows he's not doing stuff I don't want to do the Father's will because I have to. He loves the Father because the Father loves him and he does great things and he is wonderful. Imagine what lovely people we can all be as we become more and more like Jesus and how glorified he will be as that happens and how free we will be as that happens. There are some perks to being an adult. Adulting can still be hard, but who really wants to be a baby forever? Or six? Let's go into the next couple of weeks where some of the ways that we need to learn to discipline ourselves and ways that we need to learn to listen to the Holy Spirit. Um, let's go into that with anticipation and hope and love. Because Jesus is who we're aiming at. And it doesn't get better than that. We are growing into our head. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, it's actually pretty incredible. It's crazy that you want to be so united to us that you will patiently attach yourself to a flocking baby body and Help us to grow up, but also wait for us to grow up. Lord, please help us to cooperate more and more with you in our individual lives and as your people at Central Baptist Church. Thank you for what you want to do through us and in us and the ways that you want to make us free and use us to help other people find their freedom.